0: corporate unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business they share their dreams their experiences and what they would never give up so i'm so glad to have eric edmeet here with me welcome to my podcast eric good to be back we met in March, as you know, in Freezing, Stockholm, and I did a short podcast interview. And now we are here in, or at least you are in, shorts and t-shirt, in this pleasant island of Sardinia. So ready to dive deeper into your world. But first, for those of you who don't know of Eric, a brief intro. Eric is an author, serial entrepreneur, and international business speaker. He has shared the stage with people like Tony Robbins, Sir Richard Branson, and Bill Clinton. Eric has owned businesses in a variety of industries, ranging from mobile computing to Hollywood special effects, where he worked on Hollywood blockbusters like Avatar and movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. And today he's working with entrepreneurs and business owners from all over the world to inspire and empower them to achieve their full potential. So Eric, you've spent so many years launching, buying, selling, turning around businesses in so many countries, I know that you've logged 10,000 hours on stage and have spoken in 20 countries or so around the world, and you speak about business, and you speak about health and wellness, and you also have a third topic, relationships. So I gather it's quite an unusual combination of topics. You don't, <laughs> you don't mix them all together, of course, but still, to be on top of those and have something you know, truly to give, it's an unusual combination. So how come, and in general, I just want to ask, you know, who is Eric Edmits for?
1: You know, it's an interesting question because each of the things that I speak about just are born out of my own curiosities. And it's weird, like you can say you don't mix them all, but in a very real sense, I feel like you do. You know, it's uh, the person who doesn't work on their relationship but only works on their business. You know, you can tell what kind of relationship they have. So uh, I think all it really is for me is the way I really think about it is I just I'm really curious about life and so you know at, at different times of my life different things have become more prevalent or more pressing and then i've you know applied my curiosity to that specific thing and the one thread i think that's continued through all of them is this is the human condition it's like you know we're, why is it that in this unbelievable time of technology and social growth and and freedom why are people so unhappy because that that really amazes me like I'm shocked at the number of people who are on antidepressants or behavior-modifying drugs or having to seek out therapy or why are we as a people so unhappy when, when we have such a huge amount of personal liberty? And I think that all of the topics that I'm interested in are really about trying to close that gap.
0: Mm. And my just personal reflection on that is, in general, self-love. Because in a way, if you, if you have that, then you have something also to give and you can also understand yourself better. So if you come from that place whatever you do in life, it's it's somehow much easier uh, and you get an automatic, more more of a flow to Mm -hmm. life, right?
1: I think it's kind of interesting that in a historical sense, our ancestors many, many generations back, their social connections, their, their social status was completely important, not only to their enjoyment of life, but also even to their very survival of life. And so I think one of the things that happens to us is that We have an internal governor, an internal set of rules that says we must behave this way, we must do this, we must behave this way to fit into what we believe to be the cultural acceptance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those rules are actually making us unhappy and many of them aren't even real. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time when the only rule there was, was follow your instincts and follow nature and manage the relationship between your instincts and nature, you know, and that's kind of the way it was. And then since then, we've had governmental influence, religious influence, educational influence, social influence, where now there's a really intricate set of social rules to follow, most of which don't make any sense at all. And they don't really match up necessarily our instincts. And so life gets tricky. Here, here's a great example. Like three generations ago, how much choice did our grandparents have about what they would be when they grow up? Like, yeah, they didn't really have a lot of choices. Like they were born and if their dad owned a hardware store, then they were going to My grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon, and so his son was an orthopedic surgeon. And I think they fully expected that his son would be too. It was kind of like that. And then in the next generation, like my parents' generation, there was a tiny little bit more choice, but not enough. And what I mean is that in my father's case, he would have given the ability to follow his own passions. He would have been in in the natural sciences. Instead, his parents knew that he should be a lawyer, so he went to law school. And then in my generation, my parents are like, well, it's up to you. We wouldn't want to project upon you what you should grow up. And now, and now, and with my kids, I'm like, you can be anything. But the one problem is, and you have no choice, there's nothing to miss out on. When you have two choices, there's this idea that you might choose the wrong thing. And now, now look how we're messing up our kids. You can be anything. You could be a rock star. You could be an astronaut. You could be an entrepreneur. You could be a whatever. That means when you choose something, you have to unchoose another 9,000 things. And I think in a way, or weird way, that's one of the things we find difficult. Stressful.
0: But is there a bad choice in the sense that whatever you choose, if you put the right kind of energy and passion into it in a way, it turns out good. There's no wrong path.
1: I think that's one of the great answers. I really do. I, I was trying to figure out why I would often feel so tired and drained when I was making a big decision. Like, it's not like I'm lifting weight. It's not like I'm running around the block. You know, why... Is a big decision so enervating? Why does it take so much energy? And then I was meditating and I got a visualization of it. And it showed up like a bit of a graph for me where, you know, if you think of the graph being, you have a starting point and then you have these two diverging lines that are spreading out. When we have a decision, you know, example, like when my wife and I were deciding whether we should have a baby or not. So you have this moment in time where you don't yet have a baby and you haven't made a decision. And then there's one branch of your life where you're going to have a baby and there's another branch where you're not going to have a baby then what happens is we compare points along that timeline. But what we have to remember is both of those futures are imaginary, like they're both imaginary. Sure, we know a little bit about what it'll be like to have a child. We know a little bit about what it would be like not to have a child. But the truth is we have no idea. And so now we have to, first of all, make up the one potential future. Then we have to make up the other potential future. Then we have to compare those two fictitious futures. And then we compare them, like if my wife and I are deciding, you know, should we have a baby? Well, for the next hour and a half, trying to have a baby might be fun. But then we're pregnant. Now it's less fun. Then we have the baby. It's super cool. But then there's diapers and they're sick in the night and they don't sleep and it's less fun. And so we're like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And it becomes like a big short circuit. And I think now what has happened to a lot of people, for example, with what, like there are people that are in their 40s going, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, right? Like, and I think one of the reasons is it's not just A and B. It's not just choice A and choice B. There, it's like 99 choices. Now they have to make up each choice and then they have to compare each. It's difficult. Mm.
0: But also now I mean, we're discussing uh, in this meeting there where we are together a lot about longevity and so on. So sooner we are going to live, let's say, till we are 100. I mean, we are not even halfway. So there's so many more choices. It's not like I made my choice. (laughs) There's so many more. What am I going to do in five years? Maybe I'm going to do something totally different. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go for a university degree. I might find that kind of knowledge elsewhere nowadays. So there's so many more deep kind of, if you like, choices to make for everybody above 40, 50.
1: You're right. But we're also more equipped to make them. You know, um, my mother called me on my 21st birthday and she said to me, uh, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. And then she said in what I took to be kind of a condescending tone, you're a very smart kid, but when you get to 30, you're gonna realize you don't really know that much. Mm-hmm. And I thought, silly woman, you know, I'm 21. I was homeless when I was 15. I was street smart. I could survive anything. What did this woman know? You know, I kind of had this attitude when I was 21. So I got to my 30th birthday and I called my mom And she said, happy birthday. And then I said, you remember, you know, and I said, you know, you were right. Who was that kid? I mean, who was that kid? And then she just, this is her answer. (laughs) Wait till you get to 40. And it was such an interesting thing. Of course, I got to 40 and I thought, who was that kid at 30? Like, really? And so just about two weeks ago, I was uh, speaking at an event uh, um, at Camp Maverick. It's like summer camp for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I was there with, with a kid. And the kid's whatever, 27 or 28. So he's not a kid, but, you know, like, I feel like that. And he just asked me, like, what would be some of my advice that I would give myself at that age? And one of the things I said to him was, I wouldn't make any major life decisions before you're 30 years old. Like, you don't even know who you are. I know you think you do, but really, until you cross that, you won't know. And he, I think he took it a little like I did, a little bit condescending. Like, And then he wrote me yesterday, or the day before yesterday, just before we flew to Italy, and he wrote to me, goes, I can't get out of my head what you said. And then I told my girlfriend about it, and we had this whole conversation, and we completely realized you're right. We've had all this pressure on us that we have to get married, and we have to do this, and we have to do that, and we're, we don't even know who we are yet. And he said, from now onwards, I'm taking a little bit more day by day. And I think that's smart.
0: Mm. And and understanding life and all these dimensions, it would be wonderful in the future to see, or soon I hope, to see in the education, this kind of life wisdoms, Mm. philosophical subjects in different manner, not like tick off religion or something, but tick off life wisdom somehow.
1: How about even perspective? Yeah, Like, just perspective. Like, I was asked to speak at an event for some children recently. And I said, well, what would you like me to speak about? You know, since I have a number of different... And I do very well with kids because I kind of never fully grew up. So I connect well with children. So when I'm asked to speak at schools, I I usually enjoy that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you want me to speak about? And they said, we want them to take their lives a little bit more seriously. And I'm like, okay, like they're kids. And they said, yeah, it's just we want to give them a sense of why it's important to follow their passions and, and study the stuff they're curious about and so on. And so I thought a lot about how to give that perspective to the kids. And so I said, I sat with the kids and I said, all right, what's it like when summer camp is happening, right? You know, it's like, it's June. You have the last few days of school and then the first day of summer. And you have this long, expansive summer in front of you. And this incredible, long period of time. I mean, it's so long and it's June, and you're having fun, maybe you go to the beach, there's a party or three, and then it's like July, and it's like July 15, and then it's July 30, and August one comes along, and it's like, all of a sudden, the summer doesn't feel so long anymore. All of a sudden, you feel like you need to take the days a little bit more seriously. Now, in late June or July, when you planned a party, you let it happen. In August, you plan it detail by detail, like you want everything to be right. And then when you get to that last week of August and school's just around the corner, the days start becoming incredibly valuable to you and you start having almost a little bit of sadness that it's all coming to an end. And I said, those days are going to be like how years are for you in your life. That's what I said to these kids. I said, August 1st is like 50 years old. The years will go by so slowly right now. But when you get to the age of 50, you know how fast those days go in the end of August. They just go, go, go. Years will start to do that. And it was really cool because afterward, I got feedback from the organization that the kids were all like, wow, it was really interesting to understand what it looked like for an adult. And I didn't want them to get all serious about life. I just wanted them to get serious about enjoying their life.
0: Yeah, very good way of, of telling it as well. What impact have you and your team achieved so far? I'm thinking there is business freedom, there is this wild, get wild fit etc and many other things that you are doing but on a bigger level what do you feel that you've so far achieved
1: i'm really blessed because there's not a day that goes by not one day not a sunday not a holiday there's not a day that goes by that somebody doesn't write to us uh, or write to me personally and express um, some gratitude for something that we've given them and you know we collect them and we keep them and and we answer them whenever possible it's gotten a little harder the last couple of years but it's difficult to measure what that impact is. I mean, here's what I know. What I know is that we've touched the lives of tens of thousands of people in 20 countries. You know, it's been amazing. And uh, our partnership with Mind Valley, you know, has been a very big part of that. But if I really distill it down, you know, yes, people do WildFit and they, their health recovers and they, maybe they lose weight, maybe they have more energy, maybe they sleep better. In our business freedom academy sure we show somebody how to grow their business and have more freedom and all that kind of stuff that's all very real i think what it distills down to though is that the most common thread in terms of the impact we have on people is people tell us that they are enjoying their lives more that's it it just comes down to that they have a better sense of well-being that was a direct quote we did a huge set of surveying on this mm-hmm and we kept getting better sense of well-being and we're like, what exactly does that mean? So then we spoke to some of the people who completed those surveys and asked, what does better sense of well-being mean to you? And it really seemed to come down to a better life enjoyment. In the case of WildFit, we're often reducing pain for people or eliminating it, we're improving their energy just improving their physical quality of life. And then it turns out that when you change your food and stuff like that, you change your psychology dramatically as well. Mm -hmm. You change it in terms of, because the work we do with WildFit is so much about internal dialogue, they begin to realize how to master their own decision-making, not just about food, but about everything. But then the other side of it is when they start putting really productive nutrition into their body, their thoughts clean up. It's hard to have really positive thoughts when you're putting really negative food in your body when you're putting yucky sugars and cloggy stuff and bad quality fat. I mean, what are thoughts? They're electrical impulses. So if you put all this garbage in there you know, that interferes with electrical impulse, no wonder we're having let's call them low frequency thoughts. This better sense of well-being thing is a bigot. It- and then of course for our business clients we get the same thing they're like, yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first did your program, I thought it was all about the money and I, I wanted more profits and that kind of stuff. In the end, I got that. But now what I really have is I spend time with my family. I smile. The wrinkles on my face look different than they did six months ago. They're pointing up, not down. You know, it's that kind of stuff. So that impact is really, really means a great deal
0: to me. Mm. The thing about wrinkles is really true. It happened to me. I see photos of myself like three, four years ago when I was – you know, in different kind of corporate stressful situations and so on, probably 15 hours a day without understanding, I had this, you know, the line in between you the know. eyebrows. Now I don't have that. I have other wrinkles, but not there.
1: <laughs> you are you're, you're really like you have a, such a gorgeous, you know, I'll tell you, you know, I don't do every podcast interview that comes along these days. I did for years and then you just get to a point you don't have time. And certainly when I've done one with somebody, I generally, you know, why well, do another one, right? But I immediately got from you before we even met that your energy was wonderful because we wear our energy on our faces.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm thinking about this, you know, that would create great results in any area of our lives. From my perspective, it comes from this ability to like dance with fear, you could say, and, and also good habits. But what do you do with fear if it arises sometime in your life?
1: I have this general belief that Fear about the future has a direct and proportional relationship to guilt, anger, resentment about the past. So in a very real sense, if the road has been bumpy so far, I imagine the road will continue to be bumpy. And so what I've really noticed in my life is that as I was able to clean up my past, really like reassess the meanings of the events of my past, I got to a place where I I don't have any anger or fear or resentment or... I feel good about my past. I'm grateful. I mean, I had some, there are events that took place in my life that I would like use violence to defend my children against. And yet I am grateful for them. It's the weird dichotomy of parenting, right? So as a consequence, I don't really approach life with a great deal of fear because like when really bad quote marks, you have to use air quotes for that one, when really bad things happen... Even when I'm not enjoying it, even in the moment that I'm going, Oh, I'd rather it wasn't this way. I have faith that it's serving me, that it's happening for me and not to me, you know, and I just, and so I don't generally face a great deal of fear. The one that I have bumped into more recently, you know, it's uh, it kind of comes out of that Marianne Williamson quote, the one that's often credited to Nelson Mandela. It's like our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. It's that we're powerful beyond measure. And I have noticed myself bumping up against that because, The growth of our business has been so phenomenal over the last two or three years that, you know, three years ago, I might bump into a fan in a public place occasionally in the odd city where I've done a lot of work. You know, if I was in Oslo or Stockholm where I've spent a huge amount of time, I might bump into a fan or a client or what have you. Now it's absolutely routine. It's changed so much about the way my life is. And then it's really had me question, like, when I start to feel like, oh, I'd rather just sit and watch a movie with my wife. I feel this feeling of, no, you you have lives to change. And I start feeling that pressure. And I I sometimes feel a bit of fear about that. Like, it's like, how much do I really want to achieve? And, And then creating that balance between that feeling, that misguided hero complex, and the love of helping and supporting other people, and wanting to actually enjoy my time, wanting to be with my family, wanting to, I'll give you such a great example. The other day I was on a conference call well a phone call with the president of our company, Andrea, and I'm on the beach because I live on the beach and I have earphones in. And the way the tide is right now is it's taking the sand away. And so there's like a little like three foot cliff of sand and the wind blows it and it looks gorgeous. And I sat down, I'm on the phone with her. We're on the phone for an hour and a half. And I sat down and I carved out this huge... Egyptology, you know, pyramids and then pillars and a sphinx and all this stuff because I used to build sandcastles all the time. And here I am on this meeting carving this out and going, wow, I haven't done this in a year. That's not who I am. And so sometimes I bump into a bit of fear about that balance between doing purely selfish for me moment stuff versus feeling a social responsibility to go out and help.
0: But I guess living in the Dominican Republic is helping a little bit because you're in such an environment where yeah. nature is you are in nature all the time somehow but at least uh, whenever you have a little occasion uh, you're going to use it but I somehow understand also that dimension that you you seem to be very gifted in terms of communicating and touching base with people on a heart level <laughs> and then you have this innate kind of responsibility to use that for a good purpose and you are but that's why it's probably difficult to just kind of Take one step back and, and relax a little bit just yeah. for your own reasons. Yeah.
1: It's sometimes born out of what I, I sometimes think of as like an overactive empathy or like overdeveloped empathy. Because what happens is that very often if I'm sitting with somebody and they're in pain, yeah. like I, I noticed it with the first time when I was about 12 or 13 years old, a kid mm-hmm. fell off one of the rides in the playground and bit through their tongue. Mm-hmm. And I, I physically felt the pain in my body. Like I physically felt the pain in my body and I couldn't understand that. And over the years, I began to recognize it was just like a very powerful empathy. And so on one level, it seems all selfless that I want to go out and help people. But (laughs) the other side of it is that when people close to me are in pain, I'm feeling that. And so I'm solving it for me as much as I am for them. It's a bit weird.
0: Mm, Interesting. But what would you define as your passion? It's kind of um... fun. Fun.
1: I'm a hedonist. I, I really like... I look at all projects, like when people come and bring projects to me. I, a podcast is a really good example. When I get asked to do a podcast, I, you know, the normal questions, if you're in this space, you know, you're an author, you're a speaker, the normal questions are, how many viewers do they have? How many ratings do they have? How many of this do they have? Yes, my team does that. They, do, they go out and ask those questions. My bigger question is, is it going to be fun? Because like, I don't want to sit. and like, I've, I've had a few interviews where I'm like, wow, get me out of here. Like, very few of them. But so now what happens to me, like, so when we had our interview in Stockholm, it was absolutely no brainer for me to say, yeah, let's go have a proper one. It was, that 15 minutes was so fun. Let's go deeper. So, yeah, I think my, my biggest passion is enjoyment.
0: Mm. Let's dive a little bit deeper in this, um, what we would call, you know, like a long term formula for businesses or organizations, doesn't matter. What do you believe in, in terms of that? What should businesses do in order to find the right long term formula?
1: Well, I don't tend to think of it so much as what should the business do, as I tend to think of it as what should the owner do. What happens for most business owners? Well, frankly, most business owners fail. I mean, that's just the harsh reality. Something like 80% of people who start a company will be out of business within five years. But when I say most business owners, let's talk about the ones that succeed. So out of the ones that succeed, most of them will succeed through a bad combination of brute force and personal sacrifice. They will work harder than they're supposed to work. They'll sacrifice their health, their time with their family, their own personal enjoyment, and very often they'll end up earning less money than they would have if they had gone out to find a job in the private sector or something or wherever. And so I believe that one of the mistakes we make in business is misunderstanding that that a lot of people think, I mean here it's in the name, business, busyness, that's wrong. It's not supposed to be busyness, or at least certainly not for the owner. It's supposed to be, hey, I'm building this company and I'm trying to create an organic entity that is capable of thriving responsibly, uh, sustainably uh, without me. And I, do, I really believe that's what a business owner should be seeking to build is an asset, an organic asset that will, like I said, that will survive sustainably and responsibly because one of the problems we have now is that some companies have gotten so big that I'll use Coca-Cola as an example. I don't think there's any one person at Coca-Cola that's evil. I don't think there's one evil person at Coca-Cola that's saying, oh, ha, ha, ha let's create diabetes all over the world. I don't think so. I think instead the company has become this organic entity that is feeding its shareholders profitability and its job is to do that. And so now it does that at the cost of people. It does that at the cost of our health. It does that at the cost of our physical existence. So I really think that what should be happening now is a much more conscious style of business building where a business owner says, I'm building something I want it to be standalone one day, I want it to be able to operate without me, but I want it to be sustainable, I want it to be responsible. And I mean sustainable in the sense of, as a business I want it to be sustainable, and environmentally I want it to be sustainable, and sociologically I want it to be sustain. I want it to support society and not damage it. So I think if we started looking at the beginning when we create a business, if we started looking at it that way, we'd make a whole lot of decisions differently in the early days.
0: And what do you think is the way to get the best out of people in the sense that many people have roles where they use maybe 30-40% of their capacity, talents, interests or whatever. How do you get that blueprint feeling for people to stimulate them and and to really get the most out of them?
1: I think there's two principles that I really rely on in this. The one is identifying people's strengths. You know, so really taking a look and saying, what is this person's innate strength and then creating an environment where they get to use that innate strength. What'll happen very often in the business world or in the corporate world is you'll say, for example, have a very good salesperson. And they're they're a very good salesperson because perhaps they're quite extroverted, outgoing, they've got a good empathy so they can connect with people nicely, uh, they're social, they're good for what they're doing. Now, what'll happen is, is that at some point in time, that salesperson's gonna want a promotion. It's just the human condition to want to see some improvement, you know, so you give them a promotion. Well, what's the next job? The next job is sales manager. But sales manager is like paperwork. You know, it's sitting in an office. It's less social. And so now that person's going to get put into a job that their innate talents, innate skills aren't as applicable, potentially, And so consequently, they're either going to fail at that job or they're going to succeed at it, but not enjoy it, which means they're ultimately going to fail at it anyway. So what I would do instead is say, take a look and say, all right, if I know that my salespeople are eventually going to want a promotion, then what I need to do is create a career path that matches their path, right? So again, in this case, I would take the salesperson and say, wow, you're such a great salesperson. What I'd like to do is I'd like to make you into a field sales manager. And so your job really isn't going to change a great deal, except that you're going to have a team of salespeople that work with you. And sometimes they go with you on your appointments and then you're going to train them to go. And and so your job is going to be largely the way it was before. But here are the big differences. More pay, more perks, a personal assistant to do all your paperwork for you, and a team of salespeople that you're going to earn some, you know, override from now you've taken that person and promoted them into a job that fits their innate talents so that's the first thing is in my opinion is trying to construct career paths for people long-term career paths that don't have these big skill shift speed bumps that really allow them to develop then the second thing is is not getting trapped by that and stimulating people to stretch their comfort zones is stimulating them to be willing to branch out and try because very often people have desires to do things and abilities to do things, but their self-esteem is not high enough for them to see that they could be doing that thing. And so as a business owner or as a manager, or frankly, as a parent, one of my jobs, I believe, is to help people develop that self-esteem so that they can see their best potential.
0: And how did you develop your self-esteem?
1: It was a journey. I mean, I, and it's, it's a continuing journey. I find myself, I just had lunch with our team now, you know, we were just sitting talking and Andrea says to me, you know, well, what do you want with this project? How do you want this to go? And I said, Oh, Andrea, you know me. I vacillate between delusions of incredible grandeur and then low self-esteem. Like I be like, I just, you know, I bounce between these things. But of course, my version of low self-esteem today compared to my version of low self-esteem when I was 20, is a different thing. So the first thing is I believe that with rare exception, everybody is always adjusting their self-esteem. They're always going, wow, I'm worth more or less than I thought I was. And But for me, it happened in big jumps to a degree. Like I grew up with some really deep self-esteem issues. You know, I grew up in a broken, divorced home with alcoholism and all that kind of stuff. And I had cultivated beliefs that helped me to survive that life and that were then holding me back in other parts of my life. Like this is really silly, but I was about 35 years old before I stopped being afraid of women. And the more attractive in my model of the world, whatever attractive means, but the more attractive, the more afraid I would have been. I'll be really clear. If you met me at 28 years old, the odds of me sitting here comfortably just chatting away with you, I would have been having a hard time breathing. Like I, I just, I was like that. I was just, I had this horrible self-esteem about myself. And that corresponded to a fear. And one day I was sitting with, with a friend and the friend just asked me a bunch of questions and like a really good coach, allowed me to see the fallacy, you know, allowed me to see that how wrong my limiting beliefs were and how my self-assessment was so incorrect. And I saw it in a moment. I had tears streaming down my face. It was like a really bizarre moment. And it wasn't like it fixed it instantly, but it began fixing it instantly. And it was really funny because a friend of mine is a a very famous actress and, and professional sports person in, in the US and been the fr- good friends of mine for 30 years or something and at some point after this happened I, I was sitting having dinner with her and I said you know and we have such good friends at this point that we would talk about anything and I said you know I used to be really terrified of women and I had really low self-esteem around my intelligence and I just I was really worried about all this stuff um, and she goes I know and I said what do you mean you know and she goes, a girl can only throw herself at a guy so many times before she gives up. And I was like, what? I couldn't, what? And, and it was the cutest thing ever she could have said. And we were so into our friendship at that point. There was nothing, but it was, here was this unbelievably gorgeous on every, on the, on the superficial level, on the deep level, on all the levels. And here she tells me that for the last, you know, for five or 10 years, she'd been trying to flirt with me and I was so dumb that I couldn't even see it. (laughs) And so it was kind of cute. Anyway, that's kind of where it started to recover for me. And then since then, it's just been a matter of I started meditating when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. I didn't call it meditation, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I had developed these, uh, you know, in school, you might have called it daydreaming, I guess, but but now i do really deep self-assessment like when i feel doubts come up in my world i immediately ask is that really true is that really true is that really true because you know what the vast majority of the time in my experience for me my clients when they bump into doubts about their ability you know when they bump into doubts about their their goals in 99 percent of the time those doubts are not real and sometimes it just takes a really deep like is that really true is it really true what else could be true
0: and I know that once you, you were also terrified of this public speaking.
1: Great example.
0: And now you, you recognize as one of the best inspirational speakers in the world. I mean, that's a big jump. It's a jump.
1: It's a, it's a, <laughs> you know, I, the speaking thing is exactly related to this. You see, when somebody's struggling with self-esteem, they don't even know what it's holding them back from. They don't even know like, because the way my wife and I often talk about it is, is that it's almost like we have these membranes around us that prevent us from seeing the universe or seeing the world in a certain way. So in my case, the self-esteem stuff that I was having would not allow me to see the opportunities there were for me to become this or for me to do this or that because my self-esteem would say, well, I'm just not that kind of person. I couldn't do that. And so shortly after I went through that first sort of self-esteem explosion, I was like, oh my God, this is not what I thought at all. You know, I I was walking around believing that I was ugly, stupid, and logically I could tell you, no, I, I mean, I'm not, look, I'm not George Clooney over here, but I got that girls were coming up and talking to me and I got that I wasn't stupid, but yet I had these beliefs in here. And the minute I let them go, immediately it starts being, now when you ask the question, what do you want to do when you grow up, changes. You suddenly go, well, now if this is the story, maybe I could do this and this and this. And that's when speaking started coming up for me. And here's the real joke of it. I feel like if somebody isn't afraid of speaking, there's only two types of people that aren't afraid of speaking. The one is the people who are so proficient and professional and have so much practice that they legitimately don't have any fear of speaking. They're few and far between. I know I'm one of them. I often am teaching professional speakers and most of them aren't like that. Right? The other group of people that are not afraid of public speaking are the people who just don't want to. They just don't want to speak so they're not afraid of it. So I wasn't afraid of it and then all of a sudden I was like horrified of it because I wanted to. I was like, I have a mission, I want to go out and share things with the world. I suddenly got there were distinctions I wanted to share, I love to storytell, I love to entertain but I love to entertain in a transformative way and I wanted to. And then the fear became huge for me. But that also was the motivation to overcome the fear.
0: And then the more you do it, the more it's like a muscle in a way you train it.
1: The biggest thing, I mean, not that you're, you know, this isn't really about that, but I would say one of the biggest things in the world somebody can do to overcome a fear of public speaking is to practice and not show any fear with the practice. Because what happens for a lot of people is they go and do a talk and they display their fear and they tell the audience they're afraid or they shake or they, at the end, they're like, oh, thank God that's over. And the minute they do that, they make it impossible for the true self to hear the feedback. So somebody goes on stage, they do a great talk, they show their nerves. Now people walk up and go, oh my God, your talk was so good, I loved it. And in their head they're going, no, you're just saying that, you're just saying that. Yeah. And so you know, my, what I've found with so many of my clients is just teach them how to walk up on stage strong and act strong even if they're not feeling it. And now when they get the feedback, they go, oh my God, it must be true. And it really changes things exponentially quickly.
0: Mm. And um, if you assume that you have all kinds of doors open and all resources available, and I know that you have a lot of opportunities already in your, in your life, what would you then first try to change or, or innovate out there? Food. Mm.
1: The food manufacturing industry, the governmental regulatory mess up around food needs to be fixed. And the diet industry itself. I mean, the diet industry is largely preying upon victims of the food manufacturing industry. And then let's add the pharmaceutical industry on all this. It's an awful loop of profit seeking at the cost of people's quality of life. And that breaks my heart. And then on top of that, this is something that became very clear to us at WildFit. When we first started WildFit, we really thought it was just about health transformation. We just thought it's about helping people have more energy, maybe lose weight, maybe gain weight, maybe sleep better. You know, But what really blew us away is the number of clients that were reporting to us that they simply were happier, that they simply were happier. And so I am now very much of the opinion that any psychotherapy, any coaching work, Any of that stuff is absolutely wasted if you don't first deal with the nutrition because our food definitely affects our thoughts. So when somebody is eating bad food or food that's not so supportive, if they're malnourished, you know, and this is the problem in the Western world right now, is that people are the wrong combination of starving to death through malnourishment. In other words, they're not getting a lot of the vitamins, minerals, and fats, and so on that they need. And then equally, they're overfed on unbelievably bad food. And so that affects their thoughts. And the joke is it's a terrible feedback loop because eating that way makes them feel yucky and then they believe that the way to not feel yucky anymore is to go and eat some ice cream or a chocolate bar or something like that and it creates a feedback loop. So I think if I were starting my own country and I, had my, I found a huge island somewhere, in the, and I had people moving there, the first thing I would do is make absolutely sure that the food supply was functional. I think, for example, it would be a lot easier for us to solve the great problems of today, this, the major problems of today, if the world was well-nourished. And I don't mean well-fed, I mean well-nourished. Unfortunately, it's not like that currently. We're working on it.
0: What is your next thing, apart from everything you do already now, in order to reach that goal?
1: So this isn't really a secret, but there are aspects of it that are a secret, so I'll tell you what I can. You might be familiar with the movie Jaws, and uh, the guy who wrote the original book, Peter Benchley, was very deeply regretful about writing that book because, basically, he wrote a book because it was a good story. It got made into a movie, and as a result of that movie, people started killing sharks and killing sharks like everywhere. So you know he, in a sense, killed millions of sharks. I mean, he may not have wanted to kill them. He may not even have hated sharks when he wrote the book. He just wrote a great thriller, but the net effect of that book was that it ended up killing millions of sharks. Then the other thing that always fascinated me was the War of the Worlds. Now, when the War of the Worlds, when Orson Welles read the War of the Worlds out on the radio, you probably remember the story, People believed it was real. That the aliens were really invading. People were packing their suitcases. Like, those two things have always messed with my mind because it's made me wonder. It's made me wonder if I couldn't come up with a film that would do the same thing, but for the environment. You know, that people would walk out of the cinema and they would be like, different. In the way that you took these people that didn't hate sharks and now they want to kill sharks, what if I could create a project like that where people would walk out and go, "No, I won't buy that plastic anymore. I just won't. I just won't." And I believe that I've done that. And so we're in development, you know, in early stage development of that project. You know, with a like
0: a documentary or no, no, a feature film, film.
1: a, a feature film that it's subversive. The idea is that people go there for the enjoyment of a feature film and they walk out feeling differently. They walk out wanting an electric car. They walk out wanting an electric car that has their batteries made ethically for a change. Yeah, so that's, I'm very excited about that at the moment. I've been around the feature world, the the movie kind of space well enough to know that it's a long shot in so many ways. But when I've gone through the project with people, the, the right people, we've had the right reaction. It seems like we might be onto something. And frankly, I'm generally an optimist, but I'm not an optimist when it comes to our biosphere. You know, everybody goes, we should save the planet. The planet doesn't need saving. The planet's going to keep rotating around the sun for millions of years. But the thin blue layer that we live in around the outside, that is in trouble. And I most days don't feel like humans have it in us to fix it. I just don't. And so when I came up with this concept, I thought, OK, maybe there's a way to stimulate the average person to want to actually make a change and not just be a theoretical environmentalist. Mm.
0: Great. Thanks for sharing that piece of project. And do you have any other like, you know, dreams that you want to realize and that you are working on in a way, somehow in the back of your mind?
1: You know, I think the big things for me at the moment are we, you know, we're we're in a very important phase of growth with Wildfit and there are so many reasons why that's important. The one that we've already talked about is that the impact we can have on individual people's quality of life is fantastic, but the other thing is that by influencing people's buying patterns, we have a direct impact on food production, you know. We one of our favorite stories is one of our clients contacted us and said that they were going to their local butcher that sourced all of their uh, meat products from the ethical farms and all that kind of stuff. And but the problem is they were putting sugar in all the sausages. So she would ask for a special order where they wouldn't have sugar or syrup or whatever in the sausage. And so she'd been getting the same order for weeks. And then she stopped in one day for her special order. And the butcher said, we don't have your order ready. And she said, why not? And she go- he goes, because we no longer put any sugar or syrup or honey or anything in the sausage anymore. And she goes, why not? And she goes, well, because you kept doing these custom orders. And then this other guy is doing this crazy wild fit thing too. And he started asking for it. And so my partner and I started asking us, why were we even putting sugar in it? So I asked my father and he said, I don't know, because my father did it. And we had no good reason for doing it. So we made a batch for you and we tasted it and it was just as good. And so the sugar's out. Well, that's a small anecdotal example. But the fact is, is that we're now at the point where we're having an influence on thousands and soon tens of thousands and soon hundreds of thousands and soon millions of people. And if we can have an influence on their buying patterns, we're going to have an influence on the manufacturing patterns. A great example, uh, Vishen was speaking about here at the conference is that he has been probably the single biggest advocate of WildFit in the world. He sent us thousands of clients. And at one point he recorded a video talking about WildFit and stuff. And he was talking about different food things. And then he held up a can of uh, Milo by Nestle. And as a result of that video, that video went on to have something like 20 million views. Countries downgraded Milo in their health status. Even Nestle internally downgraded the health status of their own product because the truth had been brought out. And the buying patterns of people in Malaysia where the video went really crazy big affected sales of that product. That's how we're gonna make a change.
0: And uh, I'm doing some in Milan as well. I'm talking to every Carrefour, kind of, uh, <laughs> the guy who's heading the Carrefour, the local yeah. one where I normally buy. And I always keep, you know, nudging them about where where are all the tomato sauces, all the tomato stuff, which is used very much in Italy, just loaded with sugar. And so, yeah. I didn't even notice. What do you mean? Look here, you know. Sugar.
1: Ingredient number two, ingredient number three, sugar.
0: What? Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, you know, as you say, if we all do a little bit, it's going to eventually end up in a good result. If you would just give one simple but important for you advice to any kind of leader today, what would it be?
1: I think we need more leading by example. I think we need more um, leadership from ahead, from in front. You know, it's, there's a lot of do what I say, but not what I do kind of things. And I think that we need a lot more uh, leadership from the front where people really are living the way that they believe we should be living.
0: And what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now if there is like one common denominator for all companies that I see as, as instruments for, for big change if they just choose it?
1: Look, there's all kinds of change coming. Like any company who didn't start looking at the Internet in 1993, four or five, whatever, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Any company who's not currently looking at AI that's a mistake. You know, you've got to be looking at machine learning and artificial intelligence and this sort of thing. I'm a bit of a traditionalist though. I think that the same thing that was important in 1926 is important today. And that is people, you know, it's like building a business that has a culture where the people are not sacrificing their existence for their paycheck. You know, and unfortunately that's what jobs are for most people is that they put up with having to go to work because they got to pay the rent, which is really just capitalist version of slavery in some sense and i you know look i don't want to diminish how terrible slavery was i'm just saying that you have a lot of people doing something against their will in order to eat you know okay so they're not being beaten but it's still a sacrifice of their quality of life i'm of the opinion that creating a work culture that where people want to be there like look most people say they work a 40-hour week if they work a 40-hour week for many people it's 40 hours that they're working in order to have their life You know, they're putting in that 40 hours so they can get their two weeks of vacation in the Caribbean or in the Mediterranean or something. What I'm saying is that if we can create a work environment or a work atmosphere where our employees really like coming to work, they enjoy being there, then we're giving them an extra 40 hours of life per week. In many senses, you're doubling or tripling their life experience. Because if you really think about it, I saw Muhammad Ali do this wonderful talk one day and he's like held out his hands in front of him and he says, imagine this is the length of your life. And then he closes the gap halfway and he goes, now how much of it is already gone? And then he closes gap a little further and he goes, how much of it, are you, whatever's left, how much are you gonna sleep? And then he closes it a little bit more and he goes, and how much of it are you gonna work? And then how much of that last bit of time are you gonna spend waiting at the doctor's office, filling out your tax returns, looking for parking? You know, like how much is, how much life is really left? Not so much, but the joke of it is, is that if you can create in your own personal life, enjoyment out of your 40 hour work week, or if you can create that for your employees, you're, you're giving them twice, three, four times the life experience because otherwise they just put themselves into some kind of weird anesthesia and try to numb themselves to the job they hate so they can get the paycheck to pay the bills and so on. I think that's what we should be focusing on is creating cultures where life is truly worth living for people. Hmm.
0: And totally change, obviously, the, the uh, obsolete, you know, re- retirement systems and pension systems and yeah. all that we had. Because assuming that we are going to live until 100, I mean, we're going to work until we can, right? Yeah. So the final question, Eric, is the, what do you think the world needs most at this time?
1: You know, we just lost the last male northern white rhino. You know, they're talking about another species gone. And... um what the world really needs right now is perspective. There are some days where I feel absolutely pessimistic about our ability to turn anything around and we may as well just give up because we're gonna create an, an environment that is unsustainable, that we won't be able to live in. And we're gonna create our own extinction. Like, It just seems clear to me that we aren't, that it's not correctable. And then every now and again, something comes along and I go, wow, it is correctable. You know, Like Elon Musk, a guy like Elon Musk makes me believe we can make change. I'll give you another example. McDonald's. Like, I am no fan of McDonald's as a company. I I put that in the same category. I don't think there's any one evil person at McDonald's, but I do regard the company as evil fundamentally. But you know what? They used to wrap up all their burgers and things in styrofoam. And for one reason or another, they switched that. And when they switched that, if I thought, if even they would switch it, well, then we have a chance. What I think we really need is perspective. Like, I often think, if aliens ever arrive here, or maybe they're already here, if they make themselves known to us, presumably they're technologically far beyond our capacity for them to have arrived here. So let's say that that happened. Aliens suddenly arrive here. So what's the perspective that that would give us? Well, the first thing is, is that we would suddenly be homo sapiens, not black, white, yellow, red, we'd be homo sapiens. Like we would no longer be divided. We would be looking at this going, wow, we are humans and they are not, and it would give us perspective. But I don't know how we create that perspective around the environment, you know, that we're at a place right now where there is not a cubic inch of ocean that doesn't have some plastic residue in it. It's disgusting. But the average person is too concerned with paying their rent, is too concerned with what's cheaper at the grocery store because they can't afford food, for them to care that there's plastic. In North America, I grew up mostly in Canada. In North America, we were kind of grown up with this myth that the original Canadians, the original Native Americans were land-loving conservationists. No. You know, when they arrived in the Americas, there were 10 or 11 different pachyderm species, elephants like mammoths, mastodons, mastodons. There were woolly rhinos, short-faced bears. The place looked like a super Serengeti of Africa. You know, like, I mean, and it killed them all. You know, they weren't evil. They were just surviving generation by generation. And then I think what made them conservationists, my opinion here, but what made them conservationists is if you think before Europeans arrived, they couldn't see the extinctions because the extinctions might take three, four, five generations. So they don't see it. You know, oh yeah, my grandfather says we used to have this animal over here, but now nah, we haven't seen one for a long time. You know, they don't see it. But then all of a sudden Europeans arrive. And Europeans start mowing down species in a week. I mean, they're just, they have guns. They're just taking things out left, right and center. They're destroying 30 million bison. Like, and all of a sudden now the Native Americans are going, holy crap, we better conserve. And I think that we need that wake up call that they got. We as a population on earth need that wake up call to recognize how much damage we're doing. I often ask people, when do you think we started going wrong? When do you think we started messing up the environment? And the most common answer I get is the industrial revolution. Okay, so it's only been a couple of hundred years. Maybe we can turn this whole thing around. No, I believe we started messing it around the first time we pushed giant tortoises into extinction 1.4 million years ago. It started then and we're deep into it now. And I think humans need to wake up to that and start making some serious changes.
0: Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for your time. Uh, you, you're a wonderful person. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. To find out more about uh, Eric and his work, you can head to ericadmeets.com. And uh, for those of you who are interested in food and health, you should head to getwildfit.com. I've done the WildFit program, and it's a truly life-changing experience. Uh, you will find all links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com podcast. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast and I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.